my conversion to the gospel of Jesus Christ and my baptism in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints began some 37 years ago. I was in my first year of university studies when Elder Henry Eddington of Shoshone, Idaho, and Elder Eliezer Acey of Orem, Utah, began to teach me of the restored gospel of Jesus Christ. I was intrigued with the discussions. I found that my intellect was stimulated by the new vistas of knowledge presented by these two mature representatives of the Church who had been called later in life to serve a mission. Elder Eddington was leading the discussion that last evening together before I was to return to the university. He had been reviewing why there was a need for a restoration. He paused during his presentation and began to bear solemn testimony of the truthfulness of the message. And then he reached over, touching my knee with the only hand that he had, and saying, And now you will know it is true. The Spirit of God came into my body as a fire. It felt that it would consume me. It left me completely and physically exhausted, but totally assured that the Church was true. Now I knew for myself. It was nearly 30 years later, while I was on an assignment in Idaho, that I was approached by a sister who inquired, Brother Murin, would you be available tomorrow, Saturday, to come to our home for lunch? She continued without waiting for an answer. I am Velma Holtzinger, the daughter of Henry Eddington, one of the elders who taught you the gospel in California. I have in my possession my father's missionary journals, and I have marked those pages which deal with your conversion. The next day I arrived promptly and anxiously read through the marked pages. I was most interested in those passages which dealt with the experience that allowed me to know of the truthfulness of the gospel. Elder Eddington had carefully recorded in his journal that he and Elder Acey had held a special fast and had prayed that day so that young Joe Muran might know for himself. The Book of Mormon records well what occurred that night to me in 1954. As those servants of the Lord did minister with power and great authority, it was not possible that I could disbelieve their words. As the years have passed, I have recognized more fully that it was not just a spiritual experience of the moment, but rather I was a recipient of a testimony a gift from Heavenly Father that, when nourished 
and cherished would have lasting effects upon me every day of my life. Now, as we look behind me at this array of missionaries, we are often asked by non-members, why does the Church continue to send out the Elder Aces and the Elder Eddingtons, the tens of thousands of missionaries every year? They inquire, why do you send them even to those nations which already know of the Bible and of Jesus Christ? Why did Elder Acey, in his 60s, leave his bride of many years to serve a mission in California? Why did Elder Eddington, a retired teacher and principal, not remain in Idaho and enjoy his family during those golden years? Again, the answer is clear in the scriptures. After the Lord had been crucified, he returned to the earth to bear witness of his resurrection and to give a sacred charge to his apostles. Reading from the 28th chapter of the Gospel of Matthew, we read, Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. Today, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints continues with this sacred charge, that is, to go and to teach all nations, to observe all things whatsoever He, the Savior, has commanded us. These thousands of missionaries who have been called by a prophet are visual evidence that our Heavenly Father has not forgotten His children. We bear witness to the world that He lives, that He knows each one of us individually, that He has a plan, a divine plan, to bring you and to bring me back into His presence. The Savior has returned to the earth by way of modern-day prophets all of those teachings, all of those ordinances, and His holy priesthood to bring happiness in this life and eternal joy in the life to come. A plan with solutions, a divine plan with guidance to all of the challenges of this life. Again, the question is asked, why do we have more than 40,000 missionaries serving in the world? Because Heavenly Father loves us. These men and women are His servants. They are His representatives. They come with a message that truly represents what the world needs and wants. You, too, can know. You, can, too, can know for yourself. For those of you that have already received a witness of the truthfulness of that gospel, I encourage you to cherish that testimony. It is so delicate. It is so fragile. 
It needs to be nourished with prayer, with the reading of the scriptures, and being at the right place at the right time. I promise you and bear witness that your testimony will grow, and you can have a mighty effect upon those with whom you associate. Now, there are friends of mine here today who are not members. I know you search for truth, truths which Heavenly Father has given us. You need to know that you are His child. And we invite you to allow the Elder Eddingtons and the Elder Aces of the Church today to teach you how the Church was returned to the earth in these latter days. Heavenly Father offers to you, through His servants, a new life. The scriptures call it a rebirth. Not only did the Lord Jesus Christ tell His apostles to go and to teach, but also to baptize in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. I bear testimony using the words of Peter in his second epistle that we do not follow cunningly devised fables when we make known unto you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Heavenly Father and Jesus Christ did return to the earth in 1820. They did restore the priesthood of God and his plan of salvation to a modern-day prophet, Joseph Smith. I know that. I cannot deny what I have felt and what I have seen, and I bear this witness to you in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Good evening, brethren. It's a pleasure to be with you tonight. A few weeks ago, in a meeting with General Authorities, President Gordon B. Hinckley made this observation. It's easy to be a Mormon and accept the theology. It is difficult to be a Christian and follow Christ in word and in deed. President Hinckley's challenging words came with renewed force to my mind later when I was reading a book by Michael H. Hart entitled The One Hundred, a ranking of the most influential persons in history. To my surprise and disappointment, Mr. Hart ranks Jesus Christ third on his list of people who have had the greatest effect on the course of human history. And the author's reason for placing Jesus third in importance is as follows, and I quote, The impact of Jesus on human history is so obvious and so enormous that few people would question his placement near the top of the list. Indeed, the more likely question is why Jesus has not been placed first. The author acknowledges that the teachings of Jesus Christ are, quote, surely among the most remarkable and original ethical ideas ever presented. If they were widely followed, I would have no hesitation in placing Jesus first in this book, end quote. What a searing and likely very true observation. If Jesus' teachings were widely followed, Mr. Hart would have no hesitation in placing Jesus first. With these thoughts in mind, I feel it appropriate for us to ask, where do we rank Jesus Christ in our lives? Does He come first as He should? 
Perhaps a more significant question would be, where would we rank ourselves as followers of Jesus' teachings? Do we live as Christians in word and deed? This is especially important for us because, as bearers of the priesthood, we have had bestowed upon us the authority and power to officially act in the name of Jesus Christ. We have the sacred obligation and privilege to bear His name with dignity. Of all men on the earth, we are to keep His influence foremost in our lives, to bring a consistency in what we preach and our conduct. As we do so, we will become converted, strengthen each other, and His teachings and all that His life represents will have their rightful influence and honor among mankind. One morning several years ago, I was driving with my family to Disney World in Florida. Our four young daughters were excited as we approached the turnoff to that famous park. The laughter and happy chatter stopped suddenly, however, as our rented station wagon sputtered and chugged to an unexpected stop on the exit ramp. Many cars sped by us in the rush hour traffic as I tried unsuccessfully to get the car running again. Finally, realizing there was nothing more we could do, we got out of the stalled car and huddled together off the road for a word of prayer. As we looked up from our prayer, we saw a smiling, handsome man and his son maneuver their bright red sports car through the lanes of traffic and pull off the road beside us. For the remainder of the morning and into the afternoon, these men assisted us and cared for our needs in many kind and helpful ways. They took us and our belongings to the receiving area at the park. In their small car, it took several trips. They helped me locate a tow truck for the stranded car. They drove me to the rental agency to get a replacement vehicle. Then, because there was some delay, they drove back to where my family waited to let them know where I was. They bought refreshments for them and then waited with my family until I returned several hours later. We felt that these men were truly an answer to our prayer, and we told them so as we said goodbye and tried to thank them. The father responded, saying, Every morning I tell the good Lord that if there is anyone in need of my help today, please guide me to them. We ranked those men very high as followers of Christ that day. Their influence remains with us still. There have been many days since then, and possibly equally as many other people, uplifted and influenced by daily acts of Christian kindness of that father and his son. Acts of Christian service should be part of our everyday agenda. In the book of Acts, chapter 10, verse 38, it is said of Jesus that He went about doing good. Jesus taught us how to do good, to love our neighbors, to forgive others, to care for the poor, the needy, the afflicted, the lonely. It is inspiring to see that the Lord has organized His Church to also do these same things to care for the needs of others through various assignments. These planned acts of service generated through Church programs are important and commendable. They are the mark of a Christian people. The Church has a function in service and renders assistance that cannot be provided by individuals alone. These opportunities of the Church as an institution, however, cannot fulfill the responsibility you and I have for personal acts of Christlike kindness. These lift our soul and renew our relationship with our Heavenly Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. President Spencer W. Kimball said, The major strides that must be made by the Church will follow upon the major strides to be made by individuals. 
Perhaps the greatest Christian acts are those we never hear about. They are the deeds done quietly, spontaneously, anonymously, without expectation of recognition or compensation. Christian acts begin with Christ-like thoughts in our hearts, for the Lord looketh upon the heart. Then Christ's teachings and His characteristics will be reflected naturally in our actions. Soon there will be more friendly smiles, more kindly words, more courteous responses from us, all seemingly small, insignificant acts, yet they can have a great impact in all our lives. President Rex Lee of BYU has said, Christ-like niceness is the cornerstone of Christ's teachings. A junior high youth hurried home from school one day with steps lighter and quicker than usual and rushed into the house and called, Guess what? Somebody said hi to me today. (laughs) Well, if a smile or a hello or a simple kindness can bring happiness and joy into someone's life, how great is our potential to brighten this world with the influence of Christ-like niceness? I know a young priest, Jason, who faithfully and quietly attends to his aging grandmother's needs. He stops by her home regularly to care for her yard, wash windows, or run errands. Sometimes he'll prepare something for her to eat if he sees she hasn't been eating enough that day. One Saturday, when she wasn't feeling well, he took his friend to play Monopoly at her home so she wouldn't be alone. Young men and brethren, honoring womanhood is also part of following Christ. His show of understanding toward Mary and Martha, his respect and concern for his mother and the honor he bestowed upon her, demonstrate that Christian men are to be considerate, honest, courteous, caring toward women. The designation, a Christian gentleman, should be a desired title of every man, young or old, who bears the priesthood. Niceness and kindness represent one level of Christ-like service, but there are other levels. Sometimes we are asked to give more than we feel we are capable of giving or more than we really want to give. We may feel burdened with expectations and responsibilities. It is then we learn that following Christ also requires sacrifice, commitment, and courage. The father of a young family who was asked to serve as a mission president gathered his children around him. He explained to them that the prophet had emphasized that the call was a call to the entire family. He asked each of the children if they would be willing to leave their new home, their friends, their school, and go three years to an unknown place in the mission field. In that tender moment, each child agreed to willingly support this call to serve. Several days later, the father, sensing that his 14-year-old son was unusually solemn and quiet, sat down with him to ask him what was on his mind. The boy confided that he was worried about having to quit school at such a young age to serve as a full-time missionary. He didn't know if he was ready to wear a suit and tie every day. Uh, This would be the supreme sacrifice for a young man. And he said, I kind of wanted to be a boy a little longer. Of course, the son misunderstood. These duties were not expected of a young man his age. Yet he had been willing to do them if that was what the Lord required. Knowing what the Lord requires of us and also having the desire to follow Him doesn't always assure that it will be easy. I believe it would help to ask the questions my best friend always asks when faced with a difficult decision or challenge. What would the Lord have me do? Would I do it for the Lord? 
A young woman I know felt saddened and frustrated because a friend had made unkind, untrue remarks about her. It distressed her that those who heard these false accusations would believe them. She wanted others to know the truth, and she wanted her friend to realize how much hurt her words had caused. The young woman thought of ways to confront her friend in an effort to have the truth known. The situation weighed heavily upon her until finally she thought, What would Jesus do? She decided that Jesus would show love toward her friend, and this is just what this young woman did. Once she let the teachings of Jesus influence her decision and guide her actions, that which bothered her seemed not to matter. She didn't have to worry anymore about it. She said that she felt a big burden was lifted from her. What had been hard to endure became easier to resolve when a Christian attitude of forgiveness was taken. When we place Jesus first in our lives, He will guide our decisions and give us the strength to avoid temptations. One day I received a phone call from my grandson, Joel, who will soon be a deacon. He was having a difficult time making a decision. He had been invited to go, to, uh, go with a group of students from his school to a sea camp in San Diego, California. It sounded very exciting to a young boy. There would be behind-the-scene experiences at SeaWorld, watching the trainers and helping to feed the sea animals. His dilemma was that the camp would be on a weekend with scuba diving and beach exploring on Sunday. His parents had discouraged him in going but had allowed him to make his own choice, believing he would choose what was right. He had assured them that although he couldn't attend church on Sunday, he would not swim. He said, I can sit on the beach and be surrounded by God's creations. Heavenly Father couldn't feel bad about that, could he? Well, Joel wanted to know what Grandpa Rex thought he should do. I answered with a question. Joel, what do you think Jesus would want you to do? His voice was a little choked up as he answered. Grandpa, I don't think he'd be very happy with me if I do that on Sunday. Do you? (laughs) It hadn't been an easy choice for Joel to make, but it was the right one. We all have many difficult choices to make each day. There are many enticements that, if followed, will lead us away from Christ. The movies and videos we choose to watch, the entertainment we seek, the music we listen to, the styles we wear and the language we speak are all influenced by the strength of our desire to follow Christ. In making these decisions, we may feel it is too hard to be left out or to miss out on what the world thinks is okay. Yes, it is difficult to be a Christian and follow Christ in word and deed. When we do follow Him, however, we will feel the peace and assurance that comes from making right choices. He will provide the courage necessary for those times when we have to stand alone. In the Book of Mormon, Alma records the powerful account of Moroni, chief commander of all the armies of the Nephites. It is the account of one who stood alone and of the force for good he became. With his armor girded about him, his headplate, breastplate, and his shields fastened upon him, his banner of liberty raised on a pole above him, he, quote, bowed himself to the earth and prayed mightily unto his God for the blessings of liberty to rest upon his brethren, so long as there should a band of Christians remain to possess the land. For thus were all the true believers of Christ who belonged to the Church of God called by those who did not belong to the Church. Alma continues, And those who did belong to the Church were faithful, 
Yea, all those who were true believers in Christ took upon them gladly the name of Christ, or Christians as they were called, because of their belief in Christ who should come. And therefore at this time Moroni prayed that the cause of Christians might be favored. End quote. I pray that we, who have taken upon us his name and his marvelous priesthood authority and power, may also gladly take upon us the commitment to rank Jesus Christ first in our thoughts and also in our deeds, that we will find the Spirit of the Lord has wrought a mighty change in us or in our hearts, that we may have no more disposition to do evil but to do good continually. This will enable us to rank ourselves as true followers of Jesus, as true Christians. May we do this and follow Christ, I pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. I thank the Lord for this wonderful opportunity to be with you here tonight, you who hold the priesthood. I pray that my words will be appropriate, clearly heard, and understood. Some of you here tonight have just turned 12 years of age and are brand new deacons. Many of you are 13 or 14 or 16 or older. But I want to speak especially to you of the Aaronic Priesthood, and others of you may listen if you desire. Some of you have just had a birthday. I just had a birthday, my 85th. You enjoyed your birthday party, and I had a wonderful time at mine. You had your young friends around you, and I had my old friends around me. There is, however, a vital difference between us. I have had 70-plus years of experience and learning beyond yours. I have been abundantly blessed with a most challenging, exciting, and wonderfully productive life, a lifetime of witnessing a world in action. There have been many disappointments and heartaches but always opportunities, new horizons, and blessings beyond measure. I've also learned some important lessons and truths. One, the scout motto, be prepared, is for real. I grew up in a small country town in Idaho. Football came to our school later than most. It was 1923. We had neither equipment nor a coach. But the great day arrived when our high school principal was able to buy 12 inexpensive football outfits, but not with football shoes with cleats. We used our basketball shoes. Our chemistry teacher was recruited to be our coach because he once had witnessed a real game. He taught us a few simple plays and how to tackle, and then we were ready to play, or so we thought. We set off for our first game with Twin Falls, the previous year's Idaho State Champions. We dressed and went out on the field to warm up. Their school band started to play. They had more students in the band than we had in our entire high school. And then through the gates 
came their team. They kept coming and coming, all 39 of them fully equipped and shoes with cleats. The 12 of us, a full team of 11 plus one all-round substitute, watched in amazement. The game was most interesting. To say it was a learning experience is rather mild. After just two plays, we had no desire to have the ball. So we kicked it, and they scored. Whenever they got the ball, they would run a baffling play and score. Our problem was to get rid of the ball. It was less punishing. In the final minutes of the game, they became a little reckless, and a wild pass fell into the arms of Clifford Lee, who was playing halfback with me. He was startled, not knowing for sure what to do. That is, until he saw them thundering after him. Then he knew what to do. And boy, was he fast. But he wasn't running for points, he was running for his life. Clifford made a touchdown. Six points went up on the scoreboard. The final score, 106 to 6. We really didn't deserve the six points, but with our bloody shirts and socks and cuts and bruises, we took them anyway. A learning experience? Of course. An individual or a team must be prepared. Success or achievement depends upon preparation. The Aaronic priesthood years are critical years of preparation. The Lord knew young men would need these valuable teen years to prepare for life, precious years with meaningful, never-to-be-forgotten spiritual experiences. You will face some crucial decisions, but hopefully you will take advantage of the seasoned experience and counsel of your loving parents and concerned priesthood leaders. In 2 Timothy in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul is jailed in a dark, dreary dungeon awaiting execution for his belief in Jesus Christ and teaching his gospel. Pouring out his troubled soul and firm conviction, he pleads in a letter written to his dear young friend Timothy to be faithful to the truths that have been taught to him and to remember the gift of God which is in thee by the putting on of my hands. End of quote. Paul had personally blessed and ordained Timothy and now urged him to be strong and not ashamed of his testimony of our Lord, come what may. The Apostle Paul was fearless and never wavered in his testimony of Jesus. His faith and determination lifted him from being a tent maker to become a teacher, a missionary, leader, and organizer of Christian branches. He most certainly wasn't a sissy nor weak. People of great faith know what is right and do it. They have uncompromised determination and commitment 
and are capable, capable of enduring pressure or hardship. Paul knew what was right, and you know what is right. When you take courage like Paul and do what you know is right, nothing will stop your progress but yourself. Commitment is what transforms a promise into reality. It is words that speak boldly of your intentions and actions which speak louder than the words. It is coming through time after time after time, year after year after year. It is what character is made of. Oh, how this world needs committed, determined, and courageous young people, young men with a righteous conviction who will help bind up its wounds and teach faith, hope, and truth. Where will these young people come from? They will come from the ranks of the young men and women of this Church. That's where. The Lord asked, Unto what were ye ordained? And then answered, To preach my gospel by the Spirit, even to teach the truth. President Kimball stated that you, you are the sons of God, that you are the elect of God, and you have within your grasp the possibility to become a God and pass by the angels to your exaltation, possibilities which seem beyond ordinary imagination. Yet the promises are divine. As the foundation of the Salt Lake Temple was being laid, with footings 16 feet wide. President Brigham Young discovered the workmen were using a soft stone. The work was halted, the soft stone taken out and replaced with giant blocks of granite. He declared, We are building this temple to stand through the millennium. Wherefore, be not weary in well-doing, the Lord admonishes, for ye are laying the foundation of a great work. You ironic priesthood holders are setting your personal foundation stones in place, stones of granite, character stones that hopefully will last forever. Your foundation stones should include principles taught by the Savior of faith, prayer, obedience, honesty, truth, and accountability for your actions. And, of course, a keystone of your foundation will be the priesthood, the power and authority of God delegated to you to act in matters pertaining to salvation with its accompanying obligations and blessings. You are a member of a quorum of the priesthood with officers of your peers with duties, powers, and responsibilities. You are learning how Church members reach out to rescue and assist those who drift away or have a sorrow or a hurt. You are beginning to develop a sensitivity for Christ-like service, service to others that brings joy to one's soul. God, our Heavenly Father, and His Son determined. Just imagine that Joseph Smith was old enough at 14 to begin his instruction that would bring about the mighty work of the restoration of the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
Joseph saw the living God. He saw the living Christ. He was trusted with a heavenly task, and he completed it. You, too, are old enough to be trusted with ever-increasing tasks. You young Aaronic priesthood men are old enough to know right from wrong, to know about Satan and his evil influence. Satan is a Hebrew name for the devil. It means adversary, one who wages open war with the truth and those who obey truthful principles. Satan chose the evil course from the beginning. His greatest aim, as taught by Moses and Enoch, is to get men to worship him. He has had great success. As the professed God of this world, Satan has the adoration and worship of those who live after the manner of the world. All forms of wickedness and evil and rebellion against God's holy purposes are of the devil. However, we are tested and challenged and must work out our salvation in the presence of evil. Nephi taught it must needs be that there is an opposition in all things. We have our agency to choose right from wrong, good from evil. But just because evil exists does not mean that we must partake of it. You cannot do wrong and feel right. Members of our church church know that tobacco and beer and alcohol in all of their forms have been condemned by the medical and scientific world as well as by God for the use of man. Civil laws of control are generally weak and difficult to enforce. With our inspired understanding, our most effective control over these poisonous products comes from ourselves. Even though San Francisco 49er quarterback Steve Young was the only Mormon in his high school class in Connecticut, he reported that there was no drinking with his group of friends, despite intense pressure from classmates. You are old enough to know the serious consequences and chain of events that leads from the drinking of beer to hard liquor, leading to the loss of mental control and often to automobile accidents, loss of respect, and sexual immorality. Some young women have stated to the news media that they are pressured by young men into sexual involvement, even threatened with unpopularity if they don't cooperate. They surely couldn't be referring to you, could they? You young men are the protectors of your sisters and of the girls with whom you associate. Your duty to them and to yourself is to be morally clean and sexually pure before the Lord. Movies and television scenes often imply moral cleanliness is old-fashioned and not in tune with this modern world. But commandments cut into the stone tablets with the finger of God have not changed. The Lord declared, Thou shalt not commit adultery, and later added, Nor do anything like unto it. The commandments are clear and understandable and uncompromising. Lucifer is smart and cunning and understands weaknesses so he can destroy.
Emotions and passions are God-given, but controllable. My father died when I was only nine. As I was growing up, I would often think, what would my father think of me, or how could I ever disappoint my mother? She taught me and believed in me. I was no longer a little child, but an emerging man, so I needed to act accordingly. And so it is with you. Good people believe in you. We believe in you. Your parents and brothers and sisters believe in you. And God expects the best from you. You must believe in yourself. Don't give in when the going is rough, for you are laying the foundation of a great work. And that great work is your life, the fulfillment of your dreams. Never underestimate what you can become or how your talents may eventually be used. I don't ever remember a time in my young life when I had to go through the trial of breaking in a brand new pair of shoes. They were already broken in by the time I got to them as hand-me-downs. We hear that some young men request not only a pair of new shoes for school, but another for sports, and not only just and another for church. But not, any, but not just any athletic shoe will do. They must have a special designer label or be a special advertised brand. Your genes have to be, a, be 505s or Guess or Calvin Klein. Have you fallen into a trap of peer pressure that requires a certain look for you to be included in the in-crowd? whether or not your parents can afford such demands? Do others set your standards, what you will wear and what you will do and not do? Believing young men and women with standards and values make these decisions for themselves and let others follow. Why aren't we, as Latter-day Saints, with our high ideals, the examples, the peer leaders, setting the standards and criteria that others follow. The brand of clothes and the shoes you wear and the gadgetry, probably not affordable to your parents, has absolutely no bearing on what you will eventually become. Our actions, our personal behavior, and our attitude determines our character and future. The world needs someone to look up to like you. A national leader remarked, There comes a time when we must take a stand, when we draw a line in the dust and say, Beyond this line we do not go. Your preparation should include your personal conversion to the gospel truths of this work, knowing who the Savior is and who you are and why He loved you enough to make the atoning sacrifice for you. Sounds difficult? I promise you, you can know. But only if you desire, with humble prayer and careful study of the scriptures. The Lord taught, Search the scriptures, they testify of me, and ponder upon the things I have said. Your continuing preparation is to be worthy to receive the Melchizedek priesthood, keeping yourself clean and honorable 
and praying for strength and courage to withstand the evil temptations that surely come to every young man. If a mistake is made, discuss it with your bishop immediately. Do not let mistakes get an upper hold on you. Change bad behavior to good and do it now. I hope you have already made a commitment to yourself and to your Heavenly Father that you will serve a full-time mission. The Lord needs your service, and you need the unmeasured blessings. The Prophet Joseph Smith, in answer to a query about this remarkable organization, said, I teach them correct principles, and they govern themselves. I promise you, young priesthood holders, that if you will follow that counsel, to govern yourselves by correct principles, principles you learn at home, through the scriptures, modern-day prophets, and the Holy Ghost. Your decisions will be made with confidence and ease. And though the fierce winds be whipping the trees, your roots are deeply entrenched in the ground. I am a living witness of our eternal Heavenly Father's love and mercy. He lives, as does His Son, our Savior. This is His holy work. I testify in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. My brothers and sisters and friends, for some time I have pondered what I might speak about today. I seem to have been led in my thinking by a concern that so many in our generation are missing great blessings by not honoring the Lord's Day. I confess that as a young boy, Sunday was not my favorite day. Grandfather shut down the action. We didn't have any transportation. We couldn't drive the car. He wouldn't even let us start the motor. We couldn't ride the horses or the steers or the sheep. It was the Sabbath, and by commandment, the animals also needed rest. We walked to church and everywhere else we wanted to go. I can honestly say that we observe both the spirit and the letter of Sabbath worship. By today's standards, perhaps grandfather's interpretation of Sabbath day activities seems extreme, but something wonderful has been lost in our lives. To this day, I have been pondering to try to understand fully what has slipped away. Part of it was knowing that I was well on the Lord's side of the line. Another part was the feeling that Satan's influence was farther away. Mostly, it was the reinforcement received by the spiritual power which was generated. We had the rich feeling that the spiritual fullness of the earth was ours, as promised by the Lord in section 59 of the Doctrine and Covenants. Ever since Adam's day, the divine law of the Sabbath has been emphasized repeatedly over the centuries more than any other commandment. This long emphasis alone is an indication of its importance. 
In Genesis, we learn that God himself set the example for us in the creation of the earth. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God ended his work, which he had made, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work, which he had made. And God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because that in it he had rested from all his work which God created and made. In biblical times, this commandment to rest and worship was so strict that a violation of it called for the death penalty. Even the earth was given a Sabbath rest. But in the seventh year shall be a Sabbath of rest unto the land, a Sabbath for the Lord, Thou shalt neither sow thy field nor prove thy vineyard. The Sabbath was referred to in the Old Testament days as a blessed and hallowed day, as a symbol of a perpetual covenant of faithfulness, as a holy convocation, as a day of spiritual celebration. Jesus reaffirmed the importance of the Sabbath day devotion, but he introduced a new spirit into this part of worship. Rather than observe the endless technicalities and prohibitions concerning what should and should not be done on the Lord's day, he affirmed that it is lawful to do well on the Sabbath. He taught us that the Son of Man is Lord even on the Sabbath day and introduced the principle that the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. He performed good deeds on the Sabbath, such as healing the man with palsy as well as the man with a paralyzed hand. So the divine mandate of Sabbath day observance in our day is now more than a manifestation of individual devotion and commitment rather than a requirement of civil law. The great modern-day Revelation on Sabbath day worship is contained in section 59 of the Doctrine and Covenants, which I quote, And that thou mayest more fully keep thyself unspotted from the world, thou shalt go to the house of prayer and offer up thy sacraments upon my holy day. For verily this is a day appointed unto you to rest from your labors and to pay thy devotions unto the Most High. Nevertheless, thy vows shall be offered up in righteousness on all days and at all times. But remember that on this, the Lord's day, thou shalt offer thy noblations and thy sacraments unto the Most High, confessing thy sins unto thy brethren and before the Lord. And on this day thou shalt do none other thing. Only let thy food be prepared with singleness of heart, that thy fasting may be perfect, or in other words, that thy joy may be full. This great commandment is culminated with a promise. Verily I say that inasmuch as ye do this, the fullness of the earth is yours. The beasts of the field and the fowls of the air and that which climbeth upon the trees and walketh upon the earth. To have the benefit of all of God's creations is a very significant promise. Keeping the Sabbath day holy is much more than just physical rest. It involves spiritual renewal and worship. President Spencer W. Kimball gave excellent counsel on Sabbath day observance. He said, 
The Sabbath is a holy day in which to do worthy and holy things. Abstinence from work and recreation is important but insufficient. The Sabbath calls for constructive thoughts and acts. And if one merely lounges about doing nothing on the Sabbath, he is breaking it. To observe it, one must be on his knees in prayer, preparing lessons, meditating, visiting the ill and the distressed, sleeping, reading wholesome material, and intending all the meetings of that day to which he is expected. To fail to do these proper things is a transgression on the omission side." Close quote. Over a lifetime of observation, it is clear to me that the farmer who observes the Sabbath day seems to get more done on his farm than he would if he worked seven days. The mechanic will be able to turn out more and better products in six days and in seven. The doctor, the lawyer, the dentist, and the scientist will accomplish more by trying to rest on the Sabbath than if he tries to utilize every day of the week for his professional work. I would counsel all students, if they can, to arrange their schedules so that they do not study on the Sabbath. If students and other seekers after truth will do this, their minds will be quickened and the infinite spirit will lead them to the verities they wish to learn. This is because God has hallowed his day and blessed it as a perpetual covenant of faithfulness. On February 1st, 1980, when the First Presidency announced the consolidated meeting schedule, the following counsel was given. A great responsibility will be placed upon the individual members and families for properly observing the Sabbath day. More time will be available for personal study of the scripture and family-centered gospel study. Other appropriate activities, such as strengthening family ties, visiting the sick and the homebound, giving service to others, writing personal and family histories, genealogical work, and missionary work, should be carefully planned and carried out. It is expected that this new schedule of meetings and activities will result in greater spiritual growth for the members of the Church." Close quote. It is hoped that priesthood leaders and members of the Church will honor the spirit of more family togetherness on Sunday. The children of Israel were miraculously sustained in the wilderness for over 40 years. They received manna from heaven daily except on the Sabbath. The manna had to be gathered and used on the day it fell or it would become worthy and would stink. But on the sixth day prior to the Sabbath, twice as much manna fell as on the other days. The children of Israel were instructed by the Lord to gather twice as much so that it will last for two days. And because the manna did not fall on the Sabbath day. When they did this, a third miracle happened. On the Sabbath day, the manna gathered the day before did not stink, and there were no worms in it, for it was preserved for Sabbath day use. Over the centuries, other stories of miraculous happenings relating to Sabbath day observance have been preserved. 
One is the story of the cobbler working under one of the great megalith stones in Averbury near Stonehenge, England. One Sunday, wrote John Saunders in his journal for August 13, 1972, a cobbler was mending, mending shoes under one of these great stones. The minute he rose, the stone fell down and broke in pieces on the very ground where he sat, which made him see the great providence of God in preserving him alive and so deter him from breaking the Sabbath, for which reason he never more worked on the Sabbath day. A more recent miracle occurred at the Wellstake welfare tannery some years ago where hides of animals were turned tanned into leather. On regular work days, the hides were removed from the vats and fresh lime placed in the vats, after which the hides were returned to the lime solution. If the hides were not turned on holidays, they would spoil, but the change was never made on Sunday, and there were no spoiled hides on Monday explained J. Lowell Fox, the supervisor of the tannery at the time. This brought a strange fact to our minds. Holidays are determined by man, and on these days, just as on every weekday, the hides need to have special care every twelve hours. Sunday is the day set aside by the Lord as a day of rest, and he makes it possible for us to rest from our labors as he has commanded. The hides at the tannery never spoil on Sunday. This is a modern-day miracle, a miracle that happens every weekend. Close quote. Why has God asked us to honor the Sabbath day? The reasons, I think, are at least threefold. The first has to do with the physical need for rest and renewing. Obviously, God who created us would know more than we do of the limits of our physical and nervous energy and strength. The second reason is, in my opinion, of far greater significance. It has to do with the need for regeneration and the strengthening of our spiritual being. God knows that left to completely to our own devices without regular reminders of our spiritual needs, many would degenerate into the preoccupation of satisfying earthly desires and appetites. This need for physical, mental, and spiritual regeneration is met in large measure by faithful observance of the Sabbath day. The third reason may be the most important of three. It has to do with obedience to commandments as an expression of our love for God. Blessed are those who need no reasons other than they love for the Savior to keep his commandments. The response of Adam to the angel who asked Adam why he made a sacrifice unto the Lord is a model for all. Responded Adam, I know not, save the Lord commanded me. The prophet Samuel reminds us to obey is better than sacrifice and to hearken than the fat of rams. In this day of increasing access to and preoccupation with materialism, there is a sure protection for ourselves and our children against the plagues of our day. The key to that sure protection surprisingly can be found in Sabbath observance, and that thou mayest more fully keep thyself unspotted from the world, thou shalt go to the house of prayer and offer up 
thy sacraments upon my holy day. Who can question but that sincere Sabbath observance will help keep ourselves unspotted from the world? The injunction to keep the Sabbath day holy is a continuing covenant between God and his elect. The Lord told Moses and the children of Israel, Verily my Sabbath ye shall keep, for it is a sign between me and you throughout your generations, for a perpetual covenant. It is a sign between me and the children of Israel forever. Close quote. The Mosaic injunctions of Sabbath day observance contain many detailed do's and don'ts. This may have been necessary to teach obedience to those who had been in captivity and had long been denied individual freedom of choice. Thereafter, these Mosaic instructions were carried to many unwarranted extremes which the Savior condemned. In that day, the technicalities of Sabbath-day observance outweighed the weightier matters of the law, such as faith, charity, and the gifts of the Spirit. In our time, God has recognized our intelligence by not requiring endless restrictions. Perhaps this was done with a hope that we would catch more of the spirit of Sabbath worship rather than the letter thereof. In our day, however, this pendulum of Sabbath, pendulum of Sabbath day desecration has swung very far indeed. We stand in jeopardy of losing great blessings promised it. After all, it is a test by which the Lord seeks to prove you in all things to see if your devotion is complete. Where is the line as to what is acceptable and unacceptable on the Sabbath? Within the guidelines, each of us must ask, answer this question for ourselves. While these guidelines are contained in the scriptures and in the words of the modern prophets, they must also be written in our hearts and governed by our conscience. Brigham Young said of the faithful, The spirit of their religion leaks out of their hearts. It is quite unlikely that there will be any serious violation of Sabbath worship if we come humbly before the Lord and offer him all our heart, our soul, and our mind. What is worthy or unworthy on the Sabbath day will have to be judged by each of us by trying to be honest with the Lord. On the Sabbath day, we should do what we have to do and what we ought to do in an attitude of worshipfulness and then limit our act other activities. I wish to testify unequivocally concerning the blessings of Sabbath day worship. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. With you, I rejoice in the testimony and talent of these new brethren. For some months, I've tried to emphasize repentance, one of the most vital and merciful doctrines of the kingdom. It is too little understood too little applied by us all, as if it were merely a word on a bumper sticker. Since we have been told clearly by Jesus what manner of men and women we ought to become, even as he is, how can we do so, except each of us employs repentance as the regular means of personal progression? 
Personal repentance is part of taking up the cross daily. Without it, clearly there could be no perfecting of the saints. Besides, there is more individuality in those who are more holy. Sin, on the other hand, brings sameness. It shrinks us to addictive appetites and insubordinate impulses. For a brief, surging, selfish moment, sin may create the illusion of individuality, but only as in the grunting, galloping, gadarene swine. Repentance is a rescuing, not a dour doctrine. It is available to the gross sinner as well as to the already good individual striving for incremental improvement. Repentance requires both turning away from evil and turning to God. When a mighty change is required, full repentance involves a 180-degree turn and without looking back. Initially, this turning reflects progress from celestial to terrestrial behavior and later on to celestial behavior. As the sins of the celestial world are left behind, the focus falls ever more steadily upon the sins of omission, which often keep us from full consecration. Real repentance involves not a mechanical checklist, but a check-reigning of the natural self. Often overlapping and mutually reinforcing, each portion of the process of repentance is essential. This process rests on inner resolve, but is much aided by external support. There can be no repentance without recognition of wrong. Whether by provocation, introspection, or wrenching remembrance, denial must be dissolved. As with the prodigal son who finally came to himself, the first rays of recognition help us begin to see things as they really are, including distinguishing between the motes and the beams. Recognition is a sacred moment, often accompanied by the hot blush of shame. After recognition, real remorse floods the soul. This is a godly sorrow, not merely the sorrow of the world, nor the sorrowing of the damned when we can no longer take happiness in sin. False remorse, instead, is like fondling our failings. In ritual regret, we mourn our mistakes, but without mending them. There can be no real repentance without personal suffering and the passage of sufficient time for the needed cleansing and turning. This is much more than merely waiting until the feelings of remorse subside. Misery, like adversity, can have its special uses. No wonder chastening is often needed until the turning is really underway. Real remorse quickly brings forth positive indicators. Fruits meet for repentance. In process of time, these fruits bud, blossom, and ripen. True repentance also includes confession. Now, therefore, make confession unto the Lord God of your fathers. One with a broken heart will not hold back. As confession lets the sickening sin empty out, then the spirit which withdrew returns to renew. Support from others is especially crucial now. 
Hence, we are directed to be part of a caring community in which we all lift up the hands that hang down and strengthen the feeble knees. Did not the citizens of the unequal city of Enoch so improve together in process of time? All sins are to be confessed to the Lord, some to a Church official, some to others, and some to all of these. A few sins may require public confession. Confessing aids forsaking. We cannot expect to sin publicly and extensively, and then expect to be rescued privately and quickly, being beaten with only a few stripes. In real repentance there is the actual forsaking of sinning. Repent and turn yourselves from all your transgressions, so iniquity shall not be your ruin. A suffering Korhor confessed, I always knew there was a God, but his turning was still incomplete. Hence Alma said unto him, If this curse should be taken from thee, thou wouldst again lead away the hearts of this people. Thus, when a man repenteth of his sins, behold, he will confess them and forsake them. Genuine support and love from others, not isolation, is needed to sustain this painful forsaking and turning. Restitution is required, too. Because he hath sinned, he shall restore that which he took violently away, or the thing which he hath deceitfully gotten, or that which was delivered him to keep, or the lost thing which he found. Sometimes, however, restitution is not possible in real terms, such as when one has contributed to another's loss of faith or virtue. Instead, a subsequent example of righteousness provides a compensatory form of restitution. In this rigorous process, so much clearly depends upon meekness. Pride keeps repentance from even starting or from continuing. Some fail because they are more concerned with the preservation of their public image than with having Christ's image in their countenances. Pride prefers cheap repentance, paid for with shallow sorrow. Unsurprisingly, seekers after cheap repentance also search for superficial forgiveness instead of real reconciliation. Thus, repentance goes far beyond simply saying, I'm sorry. In the anguishing process of repentance, we may sometimes feel God has deserted us. The reality is that our behavior has isolated us from Him. Thus, while we are turning away from evil but have not yet turned fully to God, we are especially vulnerable. Yet we must not give up but instead reach out to God's awaiting arm of mercy, which is outstretched all the day long. Unlike us, God has no restrictive office hours. No part of walking by faith is more difficult than walking the road of repentance. However, with faith unto repentance, we can push roadblocks out of the way, moving forward to beg God for mercy. True contrition brings full capitulation. One simply surrenders caring only about what God thinks, not what they think, while meekly offering, O God, make thyself known unto me, and I will give away all my sins to know thee. Giving away all our sins is the only way we can really come to know God. 
In contrast, those who hold back some of, them or some of their sins will be held back. So will those who refuse to work humbly and honestly with the Lord's appointed. Partial disclosure to appointed leaders brings full accountability. The Prophet Joseph said, We ought to keep nothing back. Reflective of our total progression, repentance is not solely for renouncing transgression. For instance, Moses was a righteous and remarkable man. Nevertheless, he needed to change his leadership style for his welfare as well as the people's. Moses succeeded because he was the most meek man upon the face of the earth. Blessed are the meek, for they are neither easily offended by counsel nor aggravated by admonition. If we were more meek, brothers and sisters, repentance would be much more regular and less stared at. Our deficiencies of style usually reflect an underdeveloped Christian attribute, as when a chronically poor listener exhibits a lack of love or meekness. You and I are too quick to forgive ourselves in matters of style. Even when free of major transgression, we can develop self-contentment instead of seeking self-improvement. This was once true of Amulek, who later acknowledged, I was called many times, and I would not hear. Therefore, I knew concerning these things, yet I would not know. Therefore, I went on rebelling against God. Given the relevancy of repentance as a principle of progress for all, no wonder the Lord has said to His servants multiple times that the thing of greatest worth would be to cry repentance to this generation. Still other things stubbornly impede repentance, such as our not being reproved early on when we might have been less proud and more able to recognize our need to change. In such situations, truly, no man cared for my soul. Or we may be too filled with self-pity, that sludge in which sin sprouts so easily, or too invested in self-reinforcing behavior to turn away from it. Or we can be too preoccupied with pleasing the carnal mind, which always insistently asks, What have you done for me lately? We can also be too unforgiving, refusing to reclassify others. Yet he that forgiveth not his brother his trespasses standeth condemned before the Lord, for there remaineth in him the greater sin. We cannot repent for someone else, but we can forgive someone else. Refusing to hold hostage those whom the Lord seeks to set free. Ironically, some believe the Lord can forgive them, but they refuse to forgive themselves. We are further impeded at times simply because we have not really been taught why and how to repent. As we do repent, however, special reassurances await. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. All his transgressions shall not be mentioned unto him. I, the Lord, will remember their sins no more. Along with all the foregoing reasons for our individual repentance, 
Church members have a special rendezvous to keep, brothers and sisters. Nephi saw it. One day, he said, Jesus' covenant people, scattered upon all the face of the earth, will be armed with righteousness and with the power of God in great glory. This will happen, but only after more members become more saintly and more consecrated in conduct. There are some tutoring lines in one of our favorite hymns. Come unto Jesus, ye heavy laden, careworn and fainting, by sin oppressed. He'll safely guide you unto that haven where all who trust him may rest. Come unto Jesus, he'll ever heed you, though in the darkness you've gone astray. His love will find you and gently lead you from darkest night unto day. Brothers and sisters, we need never mistake local cloud cover for general darkness. The atoning light of the world saw to that. It was for our sake that perfectly remarkable Jesus was perfectly consecrated. Jesus let his own will be, quote, swallowed up in the will of the Father, end quote. If you and I would come unto Jesus, we must likewise so yield to God, holding nothing back. Then other soaring promises await. The Prophet Mormon declared that Jesus waits with open arms to receive us, while the unrepentant and the unconsecrated will never know that ultimate joy described by Mormon, who knew whereof he spoke, will never know that ultimate joy of, quote, being clasped in the arms of Jesus, end quote. May God help each of us to so live now in order to merit that marvelous moment then is my prayer for myself and for you, for all of us, in the name of the great Redeemer, even Jesus Christ. Amen.